Hello, um, welcome to the IMA. Um, it's Wednesday. I know it's confusing when these lectures sometimes move around, but there's a um, reason for that in terms of timing and scheduling. Um, my name is Johan Lund, and I'm a co-director together with Aileen Burns. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather and pay my respects to elders past, present. It's my, I wrote great pleasure, but it's really my immense pleasure to be presenting Marusha Lewandowska, um, tonight's speaker, and the sixth series uh, of lectures in this um, uh, ongoing, year-long um, series called What Can Art Institutions Do? Um, born in Poland, um, Lewandowska now divides her time between London and Hong Kong, but for the greater part of her career, having been based in London. Um, and I would say like she's, over the past 30 years, shown a kind of a dedication and a focus to thinking about the function of um, public institutions and private interests and collections and um, ex formats of exhibition like uh, very few artists I know. And, um, she relocated to Hong Kong uh, a year and a half ago, I think, uh, to take up a visiting professorship at the Chinese University um, in Hong Kong. Um, and she's currently uh, artist in residence at the uh, Asia Art Archive. And she's been developing a series of projects um, also running through the year. But I met Marisha a very long time ago, at the very beginning of my kind of um, uh, existence in the field of art. Um, 12 years ago at Konzfak in Stockholm, where Marisha was a professor for art in the public realm for between 2003 and 2013. Um, and it's been incredibly um, rewarding and challenging and interesting in so many ways to reconnect and to, to work with Marisha now and in some way continue the kind of conversations that maybe began 10 years ago, but now with uh, uh, a different set of relations. Um, and Marisha's here, she was here in April, and she's here now um, working on a project that is part of our year-long project, Imaginary Accord, and it will unfold over the next um, four months. Um, she's also having a solo show um, at Artspace in Auckland, and we're all heading to Auckland tomorrow, so it's, it's too bad that most of you won't be able to see it, although I know one of our volunteers, Michaela Bear, will actually go to New Zealand, so she will be able to see it. Um, but um, it's just my great pleasure to, to introduce Marcia uh, and also give her a warm hand to Well, thank you so much, um, Johan, for the warmth of, of your invitation and uh, introduction. And also to Aileen, uh, you are the joint directors. This is a very formal setting, and maybe uh, I also thought that what I'm going to say is to some extent trying to think more precisely about what is an institution and uh, also about my future project here at um, IMA. This is my second visit to Brisbane, and uh, I also want to acknowledge that uh, both Aileen and Johan have uh, formed a team here, which uh, I very much enjoy working with, and I'm very uh, pleased that uh, they are here tonight. During my first visit, I have met several people who have been generous, very generous with their time, and shared their knowledge and ideas which are related to IMA and to the role um, IMA has played in their own practices and also the way they have contributed to making this institution. And for me, this is a very important part of how I think about art and about various players and agents um, participating in the process of art production is to think that it is not just 
this group of people, but in fact IMA is the best example of how something that was started um, 40 years ago is still continuing and is capable of evolving and is capable of being relevant uh, over the 40 years. And I think that is an incredibly remarkable process, but that process is due to many people um, who are visible, invisible, um, sometimes excluded from also this process of memory and commemoration. So when I was here four months ago, I met with um, the gallerist Josh Milani, the designer and collector Malcolm Enright, the photographer Richard Stringer, the artist Lyndall Milani, and curator uh, Michelle Hamrich. So I want to also thank them, who some of them are here tonight, for that time and a very extended conversation which I'm also hoping to include um, in my project. So over the last 30 years, it is a long time, I have worked with a number of cultural institutions from very large national museums like Tate Modern or Moderna Muset um, to public galleries like Whitechapel and smaller artist-run spaces. But I wanted to begin with a clarification. In fact, what is understood by an institution? How it is different from other types of organizations? And in sociology, an institution describes activities which are repeated or continuous with a regular pattern. It is a place concerned with proposals relating to the values of a social group rather than an individual. It is the institution that ensures the reproduction of those values. And we usually speak of four types of institutions. First are political institutions that regulate the competition for power. There are economic institutions which are concerned with production and distribution of goods and services. Cultural institutions deal with religious, artistic, and expressive traditions in society. And kinship focuses on the questions of marriage, relationships, and family. And their study allows us to understand how societies organize their political or social life and how difference is constituted, what role language, local traditions, as well as commerce play in manufacturing symbolic value and respect. And art in this model is characterized by its principal institutions of the museum, the gallery, biennials, and art fairs. But artworks and artists exist in a larger economy of art, what the French sociologist um, Pierre Bourdieu has termed a field of cultural reproduction. This field is built from an interrelated web of curatorship, exhibitions, galleries, public and private, museums, places of education, various forms of funding, dealers, friendships, collectors, catalogues, books, theorists, critics, reviewers, advertising, and so on. People like yourselves and situations like this one. As an artist, I think of myself as a link in a whole chain of influence that manufactures the possibility of an artwork and no longer as its source or origin. Neither I nor the object or the situation that I create are the origin of the work of the work of art. I'm aware how my work is produced by the network of relationships, how it becomes legitimated by those forces. So there's nothing in a way that I feel I'm at the origin of. And I'll tell you more uh, with specific examples. And I'm also extremely conscious of the fact that there is these various and interlocking art worlds 
are themselves nested within broader social and cultural contexts. And these are represented by broadcast television, the pervasive influence of advertising and the culture of promotion, by popular leisure activities like shopping, museum trips, gallery visits, and the growing influence of internet, digital technology, and social media. Clearly, rapid technological change in information exchange, capital movements, and communications has helped diffuse of the traditional boundaries between cultural distinctions. Public culture, though, is under threat from corporate interests. Art might dissolve into fashion and the cult of celebrity, or become a branch of, an of the entertainment industry, given the convergence of the symbolic economy of art with a wider visual and promotional culture of branding, sponsorship, shopping, property development, speculation, and communication. So it would seem to me that artists need to acquire different skills and evolve new practices to engage with these shifting and emerging cultural spaces opened up by technological opportunities, institutional devolution, and cultural change. So I have moved, and that's a long time ago already, my attention from the sites of production, which would um, traditionally be the studio or the factory, to the sites of negotiation, and that's the institution itself. So I try to work with all the technologies that cultural institutions use to mediate art to their public. And rather than seeing these technologies attached to the work by others after the fact in the form of um, education, exhibition, marketing, or outreach departments, which is often how these things tend to be framed, I see them as part of the work itself. All of my collaborative projects involve research, and I'm relying on the expertise of curators, designers, sociologists, technicians, and many others. Why I feel a need to engage with this kind of process is mainly to encourage a moment of critical reflection in the audience, a critical reflection of their own experience and, habitu and habitual behavior, and to look more closely at the mechanisms that regulate, as well as obscure, the process of engagement and appreciation. So if you accept that art is co-produced rather than simply produced by artists in their studios, to be then brought with the help of public institutions to critical visibility, but also it is brought to the market to later be purchased for the nation by national institutions such as museums, then you begin to realize the vital role you together with many others, can play in that process. I think we need to understand the array of mechanisms for collaboration and reproduction, as well as the uses of the commons that have emerged over the last decades and trace their effect on our concept of how public and private realms are interlinked and constituted. What kind of support structures are generated by the close affiliations between business interests and public interests? What are the benefits of such liaisons? And what are our expectations of institutions? Whose interests do they represent? The directors, the artists, then who, which artists? Perhaps the gallerists, the visitors, collectors, the friend circle, or the media? How do we pose the question of collective entitlement in the decision-making process? What responsibility we have in the co-production of the space which we inhabit, and that's the space of art? 
I brought this one quote, and it's from the Great Charter of the Forest. And that charter was made in the 13th century, in 1217, in England. Every free man shall have the honey that is found within his woods. So if we think of public institutions as the equivalent of a collectively owned forest, what guarantee do we have of having access to its honey? Is this a question of cultural commons, a question in which culture is understood as a source of sustenance, a discursive force capable of producing relationships, honoring differences, enduring social values of the commons, but also creating antagonisms and exclusions. No one likes to feel excluded. That's why it is so important to attend to the mechanisms which create and reproduce exclusion. We all know it from experience. Exclusive access is only one example which the art world is really manufactured for itself. Just think of Venice Biennale. You need um, an invitation, of course, and it's not just an invitation. You need a pink invitation in order to get into this party and a green invitation to um, get into another party. So all that exclusive access is actually what the art world thrives on. But is this the only way? In my recent book, um, which I co-edited with Laurel Patak, who's a, a New York-based uh, curator, which is called Undoing Property, we argued for a shift of paradigm from a culture of permission to a culture of acknowledgement. And we feel that artists are turning to the future and pointing towards the destinations of art rather than its origins. Acknowledging the potential and the agency of projects and positions which through their inventive uses of creativity, instead of operating under the radar of the art world driven by proprietary regimes, change the paradigm rather than situating themselves within the acceptable boundaries. It is in the honesty and self-belief rather than self-promotion that we can situate our practice. So it is not just a promise of a future relation, but one that we can participate, co-produce, and own collectively. How conscious are we participating in a historical processes which are at the junction of different tenses, creating a future as an unconditional space of commemoration? Now let me turn to a specific example of a project from 2010 um, at Moderna Musette in Stockholm. So Moderna Musette in 2008 um, celebrated 50 years and in 2010 uh, there was their, I think every five years they have an exhibition which is called Moderna Utstellninge, which means just Moderna Exhibition. And it's really a survey of contemporary artists working in, in Sweden. What was different in 2010, that for the first time, it was not just Swedish artists or artists who were born in Sweden that were invited to it, but also other artists who had a relationship to Sweden through their maybe ongoing uh, engagement. And I was one of those artists. I was already uh, working for seven years as a, a professor at Konstwerk, as Johan already mentioned. So when Moderna Miset invited me to exhibit, um, I really don't have anything to exhibit. So 
I was interested in co-producing a project with them. And I turned my attention uh, to their logo. And what you see here is the facade of Moderna Miset with uh, their logo um, written on it. When I researched the logo, I found out that uh, it was changed uh, with the new director, who was Lars Nitve, who just came in, I think, uh, a year before this letter was written in 2002. And I came to Stockholm in 2003. And uh, he wanted, of course, as directors do, uh, change the identity, the branding, uh, the uh, visual graphic identity of the museum. So he uh, commissioned a graphic designer to look into changing the logo. And the graphic designer was interested in the handwriting of Robert Rauschenberg. So what you see on the facade is the handwriting of an artist, Robert Rauschenberg, who had a very long and special relationship with the museum. So suddenly you have this visibility of the artist's hand right on the facade of the museum. So an incredibly powerful gesture. So as you can see in this letter, although maybe it's a little bit fuzzy, is that when Lars Nitve had written to um, Bob, as he was called, uh, to ask him for permission to use the handwriting, uh, the assistant has written back and said that, of course, Bob was incredibly happy for his um, handwriting to be used. You know, artists are incredibly vain, so um, I am not surprised. So what happened really was that Rauschenberg made a gift to the museum of his um, hand. And what the museum did um, immediately after was to apply to the uh, patent office to make this a trademark, so to really enclose that handwriting, so to enclose that what was given as a gift, and in order to protect its own uh, exclusive rights to the use of it. And that's what you get when you get those exclusive rights. So when I came to think, well, I would like to, in a way, make this visible, that gesture of enclosure. So I added this copyright sign um, to the facade. And uh, that's how it looked. So it was a very discreet way, very, you know, not many people probably uh, even noticed it. But then I thought, I also wanted to acknowledge Robert Rauschenberg in some way, as he was at the origin of this gesture, uh, and it was his gift. And in the museum collection, I found this um, photograph of his. So I then looked, you know, if I could use this photograph, and when I looked at the back, it turned out that the photograph is taken by um, another great artist, Robert Mapplethorpe, uh, in 1983. Now, so in order to use this image, of course, um, the museum, on my behalf, had to approach the Maplethorpe Foundation to be able to reproduce the image. But it was, it felt strange that the photograph, which was part of the Moderna Muset collection, obviously they had no rights to that image. They only held a physical object. And in fact, that, that object was also a gift. And it was a gift of these two people who are uh, Swedish collectors who, gave, who bought the photograph originally and then gave it to the museum in 2008 when the museum was celebrating its 50 years. So the gift seems to be um, very much part of the story of, in fact, all cultural institutions. And no cultural institutions, and it doesn't matter where that is, could in fact function 
without giving and gifts. So then I worked with um, two designers in Stockholm. Um, they called themselves Constant Technique. And I wanted to make a kind of display for uh, the poster that I created in order to commemorate Robert Rauschenberg. So I did get the permission to reproduce this image uh, as a poster. So what you see here is, it's a actually double-sided poster. It was shown here uh, not long ago, so maybe some of you have seen it. And the poster very much in its design follows a standard museum um, publicity poster. They use this format for all their exhibitions. So it was important for me to use that language. And all I did was on one side, I added the copyright sign to Moderna Musette, and on the other, I added the Creative Commons sign. And what you see in the boxes, um, and I also found this quite important. Um, I share the nationality with this man, who was Joseph Conrad, um, born in Poland and lived all his life in England. And what he says about the gift, I very much um, feel close to that. So this is the double-sided poster, and you can see on the um, Creative Commons and the copyright sign next to Moderna Muset. And then I created this um, kind of antechamber as you were entering the exhibition. That was the first thing that you would encounter. And the idea was that you will take the poster. And once you've taken the poster, and if you felt you, could, you wanted to display it, um, you would have to choose which side. So you would have to choose whether it's the side with the enclosure of the copyright sign, or it's the one with Creative Commons. And what was also important to me was that I was using the museum as a mechanism for distribution. So, in fact, the gift was from me as an artist, but I could have not really legitimate, if you like, that gift without um, it being inside the museum. So the museum here, the institution, becomes this um, distributing mechanism. So you see people then wandering around. And um, they are happy. Now, I just to so that was my project, and the exhibition was on for about, I think, maybe four or five months, and then it was over, and all the works were returned to the artists, and the, my poster was still in, there were some that were still left, and the Maplethorpe Foundation uh, made this uh, clause that if there are any posters left, they all have to be destroyed. They, will, they cannot be in circulation. So of course I immediately um, took all the posters to my uh, office in Konstwag and of course I have a big supply of them still. <laughs> but there was no, really no like, immediate trace of that work. But the facade, as you can just see, there is still a shadow of the copyright sign. Uh, the museum was trying very uh, desperately to paint it over. So they used this paint that obviously didn't match the brown color and it actually looks red. And this picture is taken in 2012. So this is like two years after the show was over. You know, it was still hovering there. And so I let it be, but 
In 2014, so just last year, I've written to the um, curator, Frederick Leave, and said to him that I wanted to know whether they are keeping this work or whether they are getting rid of it. Because at the moment, there was still something that looked like my work, but there was also no acknowledgement. You couldn't find any sign what it was and why it was like that. So he said that they will call a curator's meeting and discuss it. So this is what they did, and they decided they are going to get rid of it. So I said it was a shame, but of course I agreed. Uh, that's probably the best thing to do. So I was in Stockholm this year again, and uh, I saw that the sign was actually still there. So I went to meet Frederick and asked him what happened. And he said, well, we renovated the facade. We tried to get rid of it, but it was not possible. It is virtually embedded in the render of the building. It is a ghost. It cannot disappear without taking off the entire render. So I said to him, well, if the work itself resists so much to be removed, maybe instead of getting rid of it, you should celebrate it. So he said, well, we'll have to have another meeting with the curators. So they did. And I just got an email about um, three days ago that they want this work to be in the collection. So that they are restoring the work, but of course I have to make a gift of it. So you can see how the, what I started with, which was the idea of the gift, um, was in fact something that was haunting not just my work. I think it is something that haunts all cultural um, exchanges. So I am very pleased now that the work is in the collection of the museum. And when they were uh, writing back to me, they said that it joins uh, a number of artworks that are um, what they call like, you know, in public, uh, so they're outside of the museum, uh, most of which are made by male artists in the 1980s. So it's, a, I think, a, an up, update that was really needed. And I want to jump from that facade to something that is begun to occupy my mind a few months ago uh, when Aileen and Johan uh, suggested that I work uh, as part of the 40th anniversary of this institution. So I thought also important to look at the buildings and uh, only really at this trip I um, drove round to, to find the buildings so it's probably very, very familiar to you that this was the, the first building in uh, Market Street, the second building in Edwards Street, uh, the third building, that's right, and um, that's the original logo of the IMA. So I really wanted to see, I mean, both kind of in the archives. I mean, when you look at the archives of this institution, you are quite taken by uh, all kinds of activities that have taken place as part of the institute. So, you know, if you just look at photographs uh, taken by Richard Stringer, uh, you only see exhibitions, really. 
And that is not a true picture of the institution. So it seems to me that to make up a true picture of what this institution was and what it continues to be, for me the best thing was to meet with people who were here and who are still here um, and who contributed to what it is now. And of course these ephemera are interesting because I'm also quite interested in how graphic identity drives the other identity um, of, of any institution. So, you know, all these kind of quite uh, wacky things, um, happenings, social events, you know, all that's been recorded, which is harder to tell because when you just truly look through um, Richard's photographs, uh, all that is missing. So I would like to possibly reintroduce that kind of other narrative uh, because for me that's a pulse uh, that also needs to be reinstated. There's more of these kind of ephemera. And I think thinking through what I could do, I also was quite keen to maybe think of one person that to me seemed an equivalent of an archive. And that's Malcolm Enright. Uh, he's not here tonight, although he was warmly invited and especially invited by uh, both Aileen and Johan and by myself, but he had another engagement, uh, so he's not here. But he really was someone responsible for the graphic identity of those early years. And I would like to work with him as a graphic designer on my project. So this is not just because he's a designer, but also because he embodies all kinds of contradictions. And those contradictions, to put it in a kind of concise way, are the contradictions between private interest and public culture. And he also, in his own life story, which I'm sure everyone in this room knows, kind of embodies that conflict. So this is, um, these are uh, programs or small leaflets that he designed um, in, well, from 70s through the 80s. But there were also things that I started to notice that in, you can see here already in the 90s, uh, money sort of begins to be visible. I mean, visible not just because this is a particular invitation to part with your money, but also because you have this acknowledgement of all the, uh, all the um, funders. Uh, so from then on, before, you didn't really have that so visible. And from then on, you have um, them very clearly acknowledged. And um, the name of the director appears. But then in 2000s, and I think that's also very interesting, obviously the institute is part of a larger network of cultural institutions. So you have an event uh, the Walter Benjamin Conference, which engages other uh, players and other actors uh, in the scene. And that's where we are now. But what I also, what I was quite interested in, and it's, it's a very recent and in no way like a full research that I have done, but what I did notice by looking at the various archival materials, that there's very, very strong conceptual art presence in the early years of IMA. It, and it almost feels like the institute itself is a product of a kind of conceptual art um, doing. People who established it were 
either themselves had practices that had a kind of strong um, element of um, ideas, and they had this idea to get together and to create a space, possibly initially for themselves, but then the circle or the building of the public has happened as I think it would um, in, in any case. So I looked at what was in fact the sort of origin of this interest in conceptual art in Australia. And I have come across a publication, which I only seen uh, as a PDF, which is the um, Caldor Public Projects uh, that date to the 1970s. So there was um, the John um, Calder was at the origin of that whole set of projects. And in 1971, so four years before a Brisbane Institute of Modern Art was created, he invited Harold Zeman, um, who traveled to Sydney, Adelaide, and Melbourne, not Brisbane, at the invitation of John Calder. And during this intense two-week period in April of 1971, so it's very, very, very early, and also very early for Harold Zeman, who has just done this very important exhibition in 1969. And he was visiting museums, galleries, and he visited 70 artists' studios. That's in two weeks, so it was quite a pace. And he put together an exhibition of 22 young artists in Sydney's Bonithon Gallery. I'm not sure if I, it maybe doesn't exist anymore. Bonaton, okay, okay, right. Um, and later that show went to the Melbourne's National Gallery of Victoria and it was titled, I Want to Leave, oh, um, I think this printed every second page. <laughs> I think um, it's called, I Want to Leave a Child, does it say here? Yeah, so, okay, we're missing. I think the title of the exhibition was I Want to um, Leave a New Child, or something like this. Very, very weird title. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's quite remarkable to think that Zeman, who just two years earlier, in 69, he uh, made this extremely important and famous exhibition, which is uh, Live in Your Head When Attitudes Become Form. And that was uh, when he was director of Kunsthalle Bern. And that exhibition changed the public role of the curator, who was now less a passive facilitator than an active player, a refashioned creative agent responsible for the exhibition's very staging as an event. And after resigning from his position at Bern, Zeman became something that had never previously existed, the independent curator. So this is you know, the very beginning of the 70s. And I think it's very important that he came here at that time and maybe you know, there was already, obviously, a group of people who were thinking along those lines. Well, Zeman was also a prophetic activist in search of visionaries. And he, I guess, he had this incredible energy. I mean, to see 70 artists in two weeks, that's in itself is quite remarkable. But he also knew that he had this gift, and although he was not a significant theoretical writer, he often wrote with great energy and detail about his quest in diaries in 
preparatory notes, open letters, and um, beautifully impulsive catalogue essays and articles. And this kind of memory of him is actually um, put together uh, by Daniel Birnbaum, who is a current director of Moderna Musette. So my um, story sort of comes around to Moderna. So here is the institute and its current directors, photographed by me. Um, and the new identity of IMA, um, definitely something that people like myself coming from, I guess, another part of the world, you do notice this presence of the sun. So I'm kind of projecting myself onto this space. And if you think uh, of what Georges Bataille said about the sun is that the sun gives without ever asking for return. So I'll uh, finish here. Thank you. mentioned uh, the John Calder projects but do you mean my own writing for this yeah, yeah. Uh, this will this is recorded uh, so you can listen to it I think again uh, very soon uh, and I mentioned the book that I published called undoing property and uh, I'm not sure that it's in this bookshop uh, but you can also find it uh, as a PDF on my website, and you can just download download the PDF, so it's like an open access. Say again, what was the term you're inquiring? Uh, I could be wrong, but I think you mentioned the term collective entitlement. Oh, collective entitlement, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it really ties to, to this idea that as cultural producers, um, one feels that really everything that we do is a result of many relationships and already existing um, either artifacts or texts or discourses. And I think that you know people who don't necessarily themselves produce those are also, I think, entitled to have a say in, especially I'm mainly thinking about public institutions, that to truly make them public, there must be a mechanism where people feel that they are part, that there is a space in uh, that relationship with an institution where they also have a say how things are done and why they're done in that way. So I think that for me kind of, not just through representation, but more by creating conditions where it's possible for people to really feel that they're engaged in some meaningful way. And, you know, all cultural institutions run public programs, workshops, you know, all these things are in place. But I always think that there could be, you know, that that is really a very creative field to think how you communicate 
Um, the fact that you really want to work with people who otherwise are also not necessarily artists. So that that sense of co-production is not just like a, you know, a fancy idea, but that it actually happens. That's a quiet audience, or? <laughs> this is your entitlement now, you see? That's what I mean, is this is your chance to grill me. <laughs> It's still kind of early days for me, but I have had several conversations, and I think Johan and Aileen are a very good source. Uh, they're extremely aware of both past and present uh, political conditions, and how those conditions affect what is possible. So, yeah, I am quite interested to look more closely how that shaped and, you know, is continuing to shape. So, uh, I guess one example of how now all cultural institutions are really, um, have to be much, much more aggressive in securing funds because they're all competing for the same purse in terms of public funding. So then they obviously think of other sources. Uh, I'm sure some of you have been here to the auction. Uh, an auction is one way of mixing narratives, to put it mildly. Um, you know, there are lots of questions that one needs to ask about, you know, how the public space becomes then a kind of trading floor and who benefits from that and who profits from that. So also to see, you know, how, what is, a what is of benefit to the institution, uh, how that can be sustained. Is this just a one-off? And I think the impressive story about IMA is that obviously over 40 years, there were different governments, there were different politicians, putting pressure, there are different directors who, some of them were extremely selfish, uh, very self-interested, and yet it persevered. It kind of sustained a contact with an audience, and there must have been a support, I mean, a, you know, a public support for this institution to persevere. So I think that is uh, a success story. What uh, is the cost of this? I cannot tell. <laughs> you know, there were obviously people who were excluded, there were people who uh, got, you know, maybe don't have such a positive story to, to tell. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I think, you know, it's a, uh, what, and I would say that it's also true for everyone, everyone including artists, is that you rely on a mixed economy. 
that's in a way is a good thing from my point of view because you're not beholden to just one source, to one set of influences, to one set of powers. So if you are an artist who is exclusively working with a gallerist and a dealer, um, that has also its dangers and consequences. And I would say that you know artists who maybe try to be a little bit of more distance to the market are probably creating something that is much more sustainable for themselves. I always found um, the more you give away, the more uh, interest you generate, the more people you make interested in what you do, and eventually, you know, you also uh, generate a financial economy. But it's not through calculation uh, or speculation. It's more that you know, it's a, it's a mindset. You really need to feel that the only way that you can relate to what you do yourself and how that connects with what everyone else does is because you, know, you want to share it and you want to share it on your own terms. And I think that's what the Creative Commons allows you to do, is to elect the terms through which you share. And, you know, that's exciting. That means you are actually in control. Uh, if you give it to the market, it's the market who is in control of your representation, of your value, um, of your well-being. You know, you get very depressed, when nothing's sold at an art fair, I imagine, um, you you know you feel guilty because you didn't produce something that you know there are all these quite disturbing um, side effects. I I don't you know I don't, but I'm talking you know 30 years of doing this. Uh, there are also, you know, other kind of sacrifices that you make, um, but that's, you know, true for every artist. I think you use the term um, acknowledgement and promotion. Permission. So, from culture of permission to the culture of acknowledgement. Uh, so that really means that, I think that's what Creative Commons allows you, is that you don't need to ask me whether you can do this, that, or the other. I already have, I have specified that in the license, giving the image or the work uh, that license. So all you need to do is to acknowledge that I am the author, and you don't need to ask me for any permission. So this is something that I have been, I guess, quite actively involved with, both in teaching, in publishing, in working with institutions, is to, you know, to give acknowledgement where it's due, but not to really work kind of around enclosures. And although I am planning for part of this project to have one component which will be um, possibly you know, something that will have a price, and this is precisely to test what is the difference if you do that. If you say, you know, this is a limited edition, for example, as opposed to putting it as a PDF in an unlimited space of the digital. But I think you need to really create those different types of gestures to, to know what is the difference. And also to expose the weaknesses of those you know, different systems. 
under which your work circulates. Thank you.